And do you know how many people would probably like run away at the sight of dismembered legs? Yeah. Dude, there's a four foot bong and a bag of weed by your bed. <laughs> Jelly Wings, the parlor game for nerds, is nearing extinction. It's in my pod! It's in my pod! <laughs> I will find proof. <laughs> I am very easily startled, Mr. Finkelman. I don't know which regulation body would regulate the uh, penis ring that you were talking about earlier. (laughs) I'm ready to remain conscious as we record this show. Hey, welcome to Medical Stuff. My name is Mark Solo Frankham. Uh, Not to be confused with Hope Solo, who was the uh, American female uh, goalie. For the U.S. soccer team from 2000 to 2016. She uh, <clears throat> played many professional teams. She went to the Olympics multiple times. They won medals. They had international competitions, which they won with her uh, goalkeeping skills. So I am definitely not her. Just, you know, I wanted to make sure that people knew that what was going on. Who I am, you know, who I'm not, definitely. I'm definitely not some internationally known female athlete. Okay, glad we cleared that up. So this evening, we're going to be talking about pediatric events. And what do we mean by that? Well, the primary ones we're going to be talking about are going to be uh, what's called Alti and Brewy. And then at the very end, we're going to be talking about SIDS. So Alti, what is it? Well, uh, this was all initiated by SIDS. Uh, Alti is a parent life-threatening event. And Brewy is brief, resolved, unexplained event. They're not really disorders in and of themselves. They're more of a group of alarming symptoms that can occur in infants. So the ALTI term was initially brought to life to kind of replace near-miss SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, which has a pretty pretty bad connotation to it, if you think about it. I mean, you th- anything with the term SIDS in it is obviously going to be very, very disturbing to everybody involved. So the term ALTI, apparent life-threatening event, originated in 1986, uh, the National Institute of Health Consensus Conference of the Infantile Apnea, or the NIHCCIA, of course, (laughs) was intended to replace uh, the term near-miss sudden infant death syndrome. An ALTI was defined as an episode that is frightening to the observer, that is characterized by some combination of apnea, which is... uh, Lack of breathing. If you're apneic, you're not breathing. Uh, Color change. Usually cyanosis, which is a blue color. Or pallid, but occasionally red. Um, Marked change in muscle tone, which is, you know, the patient goes completely limp, basically. Uh, Choking or gagging. And in some cases, the observer fears that the infant has died. So initially... Alti was thought to be related to SIDS, hence the term uh, near-miss sudden infant death syndrome. So basically, they initially thought that this was going to be something that <clears throat> could be could have very easily been SIDS, kind of the difference between a TIA and a stroke. They had all the SIDS symptoms, except for the fact that they self-resolved. So some of the differences they found between Alti and SIDS is that... Um, 74% of the patients, of all T patients, uh, were under two months old, while only 25% of SIDS victims were in the same age group. Also, the makeup of the, the, makeup of the all T babies was more inclined towards female babies. 
So you had a lot more female babies ha- having an alti. And as we'll talk about later, you know, SIDS babies tend to more be male babies. Uh, SIDS uh, victims were also found to have a lower gestational weight and lower birth weight. And so as they started studying the, you know, the connection, what they thought was a connection between the two, they found that the connection really wasn't there. So they initially thought the ALTI was related to SIDS, but one of the problems was when they went to uh, side sleep or back sleep, even more so for babies, they found that cases of SIDS really plummeted. And I mean, I remember back in the 80s and 90s when SIDS patients were not that uncommon. In fact, as a paramedic, uh, my first three pediatric cardiac arrests were SID cases back in the 90s. And so, you know, I mean, you hear about it still these days, but not to the extent that you did back then. So as the drop in, as they changed the way the baby was sleeping, which back when SIDS was kind of at its height, it was a lot more, um, people thought that sleep, having the baby sleep on their stomach was the best uh, option. And the theory was if they spit up during the night, then it would just come straight out their mouth. But they were finding that sleeping on the uh, sleeping face down in the crib was actually creating more of the problem than it was solving. One of the problems with that is that if the child's on their back and they spit up, the esophagus is actually the farther back of the two pipes in your throat. So it's not as big of an issue as people thought it was. So they, there was a group that studied from 2014 to 2016. There was a group uh, that studied all of this data from 1970 to 2014 relating ALTI to SIDS. Now, the reason it was called uh, ALTI was because they, they thought it was related to SIDS. And so they felt it was a life-threatening event. So every one of these patients was getting full workups in the ER. They were getting lab tests done. They were getting lumbar punctures. They were really kind of going to the fence for this and trying to figure out what was going on. So through the review of this data, they found that really the connections between these events were not anything you could really put a direct line to. So kind of changed the thought process and the way we were looking at these. They decided to come up with a new term, BRUE, B-R-U-E. It stands for Brief Resolved Unexplained Event. Now, the symptoms or the, the incident that shows up uh, in both of these, A-L-T-E and BRUE, is the same catalyst. You're going to see the child having the same problems, but the huge difference here is on the backside what's being done. Uh, the term ALTI would assume that all of these life threats were, events were life threats, uh, but that doesn't seem to really be bearing out. So the de- definition of brewery is an event lasting less than one minute in an infant less than one year of age that is associated with at least one of the following. Cyanosis or pallor, so they're turning blue. Absent, decreased, or irregular breathing. Marked change in muscle tone, either uh, hypertonia, where they're, they're rigid, or they're flaccid. And an altered level of responsiveness. So they're just, they're just not responding to you the way they would normally. Patients must otherwise be well appearing and back to baseline, by, uh, back to baseline health at time of presentation and during evaluation and have no condition that could explain it. So the big change between Alti and Brewy is that the look at it right now is <clears throat> more of 
risk mitigation or not risk mitigation, but um, risk assessment would be the term I'm looking for there. So low risk patients, they're going to be more than 60 days old, a gestational age of 30 of greater than 32 weeks and uh, a post conceptual age of greater than 45 weeks. Uh, only one event, uh, no prior events of this, no clusters of them. If you start having multiples of these, you automatically can't go to the high risk of uh, patient group. The event should not have had CPR required by a trained medical personnel. And they put that stipulation on the end for many reasons. Uh, especially with CPR, the way it's going these days, if the patient doesn't respond to you, there's no more really checking respiratory status. There's no more checking for a pulse because even a trained responder in a good situation can have a hard time finding a pulse. And so CPR these days is a lot more meant to be, if they're not able to argue with you and they don't appear to be breathing, start CPR. Whereas as paramedics or, you know, if we show up on scene, we have other things that we can look at other than just looking at the baby. We can get a pulse ox on them. We can get a cardiac monitor on them. We can get check their end title CO2. We can check their blood sugar, stuff like that. So that's why they're saying that has to be CPR perform as being required by a medical professional that's been trained so that it gives a more definitive airway. No, it gives a more definitive uh, assessment of the patient. Uh, there should be no concerning history or physical examination elements. So during the, you know, during the exam, nothing should pop up. So legitimately the low risk patient's you can't find anything by the time they get to health in front of healthcare providers. So high risk patients, those not meeting the ages or timing criteria, uh, concerns identified from history or physical and physician, uh, family history, <laughs> physician history, family history of sudden cardiac death, uh, subtle or non-diagnostic social feeding or respiratory problems. So one of the things that they found that can cause this is a, um, a history of GERD or gastric reflex where the patient's um, having a lot of spit-ups. So the key questions uh, related to the history of the episode include the following. Who observed the event? <clears throat> um, recognize that secondhand accounts may vary from history provider or by direct observers who were present at the time. You know, a lot of the information that you're going to, especially we get on scene, we take all of it into account, but we also take into account the person giving it to us. People that are much more excitable, you know, may not be as great historians. There was a very interesting TV show on History Channel called um, Brain Games. And it started out as kind of a uh, four-part series, and it went on to like an actual like uh, full-length series for a little bit. But one of the things they did was they staged in a park... A robbery and then they asked so there was a guy there performing uh, card tricks I believe and then a guy came up and stole somebody's purse and the person's purse was in on it and handed it off to somebody else and then that person took off running well the two uh, an ex-police officer and a person for the show came in and they started talking to everybody and the range of descriptions that they got of what went on and what the people look like 
was quite varied. It was very interesting because they went on after that and they even took it to a step further where people were called in for a court, you know, to be, they're called into a group area where they're going to be interviewed as a group. And they planted two people in there to plant false information. And then they watched to see what would happen with this false information. And a lot of it was actually picked up by the group and agreed upon stuff that never happened and stuff that was never seen and stuff nobody recorded you know, reported when it first happened. So, you know, we have to kind of take that into account. Uh, I had a call where we, we get the call and the call comes in as a fully involved house fire that, you know, somebody's stuck in the bathroom. And so they, they light up half the county because <laughs> this sounds like it's going to be the real deal. And they start sending us code three because there's somebody stuck in the bathroom and, you know, they're probably going to have to try and extricate him and stuff like that. Well, the first fire unit gets on scene. There's nothing going on. There's no fire. There's no smoke. They cancel everybody. They keep us coming in code three because they haven't really had a chance to fully investigate. And there was a guy there who was burned. He had been, uh, I don't know exactly what happened, but he got hot oil splashed all over his face and down his chest. There was no fire. And the person that was in the bathroom was the guy who walked himself down to the bathroom to rinse off the oil and get into the shower just to stop the burning and do everything like that. The wife is all over the place when we get there. I mean, she is freaking out. The husband literally comes walking out of the bathroom and is like, yeah, I should probably go get checked out. <laughs> Walked out to the ambulance. Hey, can I put a shirt on? Well, let's not put a shirt on because you do have second and third degree burns down your chest. You know, uh, it was bad enough that we were almost, we were reluctant to take the wife with us because we thought that she might interfere too bad. The only reason we did is I talked over the fire department because they were going to get her an Uber and they're like, Uber's not going to take her. Cab's not going to take her. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well. Okay, stick her front. You know, we'll lay down the law. You know, let her understand that if she gets out of hand, we'll we'll pull over and kick her out wherever we are. And she was able to barely maintain all the way to the hospital. But that's the difference between sometimes between reality and somebody who's very very anxious. Now, this is people's children, so we're not downplaying the anxiety. We're not downplaying. I'm not downplaying the anxiety. What I'm just saying is that we kind of have to take this. You know, take balance that with what we're seeing and, you know, what other people may be saying. Uh, what was the description of the event? A caregiver's description of the infant's color, respiration, a muscle cone, muscle tone or key, or muscle cone is T, depending on how I want to say it. Uh, care must be taken to distinguish central cyanosis, which is the lips of the, uh, blueness of the lips and the oral mucosa versus acrocyanosis, which would be hands and feet. And the reason we want to distinguish this is that because a lot of infants can get acrocyanosis or peripheral uh, cyanosis just from uh, just from temperature changes and stuff like that. So they can, as the body adjusts to temperature changes and vasoconstricts and vasodilates, they can give you a brief acrocyanosis. So we're going to determine whether apnea was uh, present, and if so whether it appeared to be central, lack of respiratory effort, or obstructive, uh, gagging or respiratory effort with inadequate airflow. Uh, some people would call it guppy breathing. Distinguished apnea, that, or distinguished apnea lasted more than 15 to 20 seconds from uh, periodic breathing. 
So was it true apnea where they just were not breathing or were they taking very slow breaths? So we're going to determine whether the infant was limp or was muscle tone increased or during or after the event. Were there any seizure-like uh, movements involved? Now, I think we talked about this in the seizure episode where you can have what are called convulsions of syncope, which we hear this a lot with patients who have had a syncopal episode. And as they're going out, they have full body convulsions. And this is uh, different than seizures. It's basically your brain kind of freaking out because of the lack of blood flow, which, you know, like I said, is completely different. If you're, if you're uh, curious about that, definitely go listen to our seizure episode. So um, are, were they limp? Seizure-like activity. Was there any resuscitation required or did the event spontaneously resolve? Recall that caregivers may give mouth-to-mouth. You know, people taking care of the child may do mouth-to-mouth. They may do uh, compressions. But, so that's why we want that to be from a uh, trained medical professional, whether it was actually necessary or not. Now, I will never down anybody or try and call anybody out because they did these things if I even if I didn't believe they were necessarily necessary because in the moment it's very scary and it's very overwhelming and I would much rather see somebody attempt CPR and the person or the patient come up swinging than not try anything and they needed it so again that's not a it's not a it's not a gig on the people doing it it's just that whether it was truly necessary or not, it's hard to make a judgment call in the moment like that. So then they're going to look at, uh, was the infant born at term or were they premature? Does the patient have any other significant health issues? Uh, was the pregnancy or labor delivery, uh, were there complications during that time? And uh, are there any factors to uh, predispose to neonatal sepsis? Neonatal sepsis. Has the infant previously exhibited symptoms of GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease or aspiration of thin liquids? Uh, this may include coughing, choking, gagging during, any, during or after a feeding, a gagging uh, or frequent or excessive spitting up, persistent nasal stuffiness, or frequent hiccups. Acid reflux is, disease is suggested by excessive irritability, arching, and straining behaviors displayed during and following a feeding. So are the, you know, they're going to look at the newborn's uh, metabolic screenings. And uh, does the family have a history of seizures, metabolic disorders, sudden infant death syndrome, or unexplained death, infancy, or children? Now, one of the problems with uh, Alti and with Brewy is that there needs to be, unfortunately, there needs to be an eye on whether this was abuse or not, or something else going on in the household. Because you can have these symptoms... And there are many forms of abuse for children. Straight up physical, you know, is one of them. But then also uh, go back and listen to our uh, Munchausen syndrome episode and learn about that. Or Munchausen by proxy, which is what this would be. So something to think about, something to listen to uh, if you're interested. But yeah, something the doctors are going to look at. Okay, so next is going to be the physical examination. A full head-to-toe examination of the skin should be performed, looking for lesions or signs of trauma. The head-neck examination should note the characteristics of the anterior fontanelles. Are they bulging? Are they sunken? Non-dilated fundoscopic examination should be performed by the doctor. And uh, they're going to be looking for something called petechiae, retinal hemorrhages, 
Uh, a form of indirect examination may be necessary for further characterization of these. The nose, nose and mouth should be examined for the presence of blood or formula. Uh, the respiratory examination should include a respiratory rate, the pattern of breathing, adequacy of air exchange, the presence of uh, either strider, which is a high-pitched whistle in the upper airway, wheezes, which is wheezing, I guess. <laughs> it's a high-pitched noise actually down in the lungs. Crackles, which are more thought to be... In adults, we think of crackles in congestive heart failure patients. And then we think of ronchi in patient, adult patients who have uh, mucus in their lungs or phlegm. So the cardiovas cardiovascular examination should reveal whether murmurs are present, which is a tone in the heart, and the adequacy and symmetri uh, symmetry of pulses. In young infants, suspicion of ductal-dependent cardiovascular lesions may be heralded by different blood pressure findings. So they may take blood pressures on both left and right arm to see if they're going to be the same. So they're going to do the same with the patient's pulse ox. They're going to make sure that you're getting adequate blood flow and pulse oxes on the uh, different limbs. So abdominal distension or tenderness could be uh, intestinal obst obstruction. Uh, neurologic assessments begin with the baby's with the assessment of the infant's responsiveness, determine whether lethargy is present or is resolved, or whether muscle tone or reflexes are appropriate for the age. Also, they're going to determine if the focal or lateralizing findings are present. So what they're doing is they're looking for things that are happening just in one area and then making sure that they're both good on both sides. And then the skin should be carefully examined for bruises again. The bones should be carefully palpated for signs of trauma. So for the lowest uh, category, the recommended treatment is for the physician, is for physical exam in the ED with observation during their stay for any external abnormalities. If anything specific is found, then uh, that changes everything and your baby's probably gonna be admitted at least overnight. But if everything's within normal limits, then the patient is discharged with education for the parents about what's been going on. And although I understand why they do this, one of the things I find is that it's such an overwhelming situation for anybody, not just parents of newborns, but, you know, we get patients all the time who have been, have gone to the ER once and, or have been diagnosed with something by a doctor and the doctors explained it to them and they don't have any idea what the doctor was talking about. So, you know, they're going to try and do education with the parents and then they're also going to recommend a CPR course. If the patient, if the parents don't already have one, this is more of a kind of a, just a prophylactic option. You know, this has happened once by everything we're finding. This is probably never going to happen again by a high percentage, like high 90 percentage. This is never going to happen again, but just in case it does, why don't we have you CPR trained just to make sure uh, that everything is going to be okay with your child. So Okay, let's move on to the high-risk criteria patients. So, uh, let's go back over those real quick. Let me scroll back. High-risk, where was it? High-risk criteria. Uh, not within the age limits, so they are less than 60 days old. They have, uh, they were less than 32 weeks gestation. Uh, they have uh, concerns about history or examination, so they found something during the examination. And then there's a family history of sudden cardiac death or uh, 
feeding problems, respiratory problems, everything like that. So for the high-risk patients, what are they going to do? The recommendations are going to do a CBC count, which is a blood, uh, blood draw. And they're checking for a systemic viral or bacterial infection or possibly anemia. There's going to be serum calcium levels to assess for hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, which is lack of a... Which is going to be a low sodium, not to be confused with hyponutria, which is distinct lack of uh, small rodent creatures in your uh, watershed. So... <laughs> uh, they're going to look for hyperkalemia, which is high potassium, acidemia, which is um, being acidotic as opposed to being alkalotic, and then hyper hypocalcemia, which is low calcium levels. They're going to look for elevation of serum lactate, which can, uh, I believe, if they're checking for the lactates, they're going to be looking for infections. Uh, arterial blood gas is going to be done to assess for acidosis or retention of carbon dioxide. They're going to do uh, serum or urine toxicology studies for possible ingested materials, be that they got into something they wouldn't, weren't supposed to have, or again the abuse. It's bacteria, uh, specific bacterial or viral cultures to assess for respiratory syncytial uh, <laughs> virus or RSV. They're going to check for pertussis, bactremia, and urinary tract infection. So they're looking for all sorts of reasons of why this pa uh, patient may have uh, an infection or where it is. They're going to do an ECG, which is a 12 lead to look for prolonged, uh, sorry, prolonged QT syndrome, which uh, what it is, is it's imagine a cardiac rhythm. You got a little bumpy thing, big spiky one. Then you've got a, a bigger bumpy thing. The problem is, is if you have too much time between the big spiky one and the big bumpy thing at the end, that can cause to a lot of problems. And uh, also a pre-excitation that suggests SVT or other dysrhythmia. SVT is a supraventricular tachycardia. It's a cardiac rhythm that uh, will make the heart run very, very fast. <clears throat> uh, an EEG to assess for epilepsy. They're going to do an upper GI contrast study to assess a swallowing uh, for, I'm sorry, the assessing for swallowing dysfunction thin liquid aspiration, or upper intestinal anatomic malformations. They're going to do an impedance pH monitoring to assess for GERD. They're going to do neuroimaging to assess for uh, hemorrhage or structural central nervous system abnormalities. And then they're going to do a test for sleep-based disturbances in cardiorespiratory control. So there's going to be a lot of tests that they have there that they can potentially do. Now, they may not do all of these initially. Some of these may be done in the ER. The patient is sent up to a room overnight, the patient's observed overnight, and then discharged, and, you know, the family's told to see the specialist and have the specialist date set up. They may decide to do it right there in the, in the hospital, too. So, treatment. Uh, in the event that a brief, uh, if the event was brief, included no signs of breathing or heart problems, and corrected on its own, a child will likely not need to stay in the hospital. However... However, there's always a however on these things, you know. <laughs> Reasons your child may be admitted to overnight. The event included symptoms that indicate a more serious cause. There's suspected trauma or neglect. You know, when we talk about that, and it seems a little bit morbid just to kind of go straight to that, but remember that this is going to be happening to children under the age of one. So it's going to be very difficult for them to injure themselves 
without the parents knowing about it or seeing it. So, or if there's a suspected poisoning, uh, the child appears unwell and is not thriving. There's no uh, need to monitor or observe the child while feeding. Or there's concern over the parent's ability to care for the child. If your child is admitted, the heart rate and breathing are going to be monitored. Uh, the provider, provider may recommend that you or other caregivers place your infant on the back, on his back or their back, when sleeping and napping, and his face should be free. Uh, this was, uh, they believe, was one of the uh, causes of SIDS. Also, avoid stuff bedding materials. Babies should be placed on a firm, tight-fitting crib mattress without loose bedding. Reason being is if they do roll over during the night, soft bedding, their face down, it will cause uh, them to, it can, it can cause them to obstruct their own airway. Uh, using a light sheet to cover the baby, you know, the room should be warm enough for the child. You shouldn't be bundling them up and everything heavy. Um, don't use pillows, comforters, or quilts. They're gorgeous and, you know, your mom gave them to her and she just loves it and you love it. But for child, children this age, if they get tangled up in it, they may not have the strength or the, you know, the know-how to be able to get out of it. Uh, this is a big one. Avoid exposure to secondhand smoke. This is, just don't smoke around your kids. Just don't smoke, you know. And this is coming from a, many, a long-time smoker, and it is hard to quit. Hard, hard, hard to quit. But it does get to the point where, when you're stressed, or when you've been drinking, that you don't crave a cigarette. It will happen eventually. I promise. It did for me. It took years. Uh, consider saline nose drops or using uh, a nasal bulb if they're congested. Uh, you've seen these, it just looks like a, uh, it's a long, thin tube with a bulb on the end. You compress it, push it up their nose, and then release it, and the suction will pull out uh, congestion. Uh, learn proper techniques to respond to future events. This would be CPR. This does not include shaking the baby. Uh, the provider will instruct you as appropriate. You're not going to try and force the baby to wake up. You want to make sure the baby's protected, and if things are going wrong, know how to respond to that. CPR is a big one of those. Avoid overfeeding, perform frequent burping during feedings, and hold the up patient, or I'm sorry, the baby up uh, upright after feeding. And then talk to your provider about uh, thickening your child's feedings or using medicines that reduce acid reflux. So, although it's not very common, there may be home monitoring devices may be required to see what's going on while you're at home. So, yeah, those are ALTI, which was the uh, new term for the uh, near-missed uh, sudden infant death syndrome. And then once they found there wasn't a direct connection between ALTI and SIDS, Brewery was the next step in it in trying to assess, is this patient at high risk for this happening again or having a, a bigger event or not? And if it's not, if this is a one-time event, sometimes there's just one-time events and it happens and you move on, you know. So... Okay, so for the last section, we're going to talk about SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. It's the unexpected death, usually during sleep, of a seemingly healthy baby less than a year old. SIDS is sometimes known as crib death because the infants often die in their cribs. So this is something that, um, thankfully, the incidences of this, incidences of this have gone down tremendously. Uh, again, one of the big things was having your child sleep on their back. Uh, for a long time, they felt that sleeping on the stomach was the way to go, just in case they vomited or they you know they spit up. 
But what they found is that, you know, the body naturally kind of flows everything towards the esophagus. Can it happen? Yeah, it can happen. But, you know, with the advent of monitoring technology and everything like that, the chance of it becoming a life-threatening event is very, very slim. So, yeah, thankfully the numbers have gone down. Like I said, there was a time when this was not an uncommon thing to hear about. Again, my very first, my first three pediatric cardiac arrests and EMS were all SIDS cases. Parents went in, checked on the baby, go back a couple, you know, an hour later, check on the baby again, and the babies died. So, now, I'm not saying that SIDS never happens anymore. It's still very much a reality. It's just the occurrence of it has gone down dramatically with change in concepts and theories. So, Causes. A combination of physical and sleep environmental factors can make an infant more vulnerable to SIDS. These, uh, unfortunately, these factors vary from child to child. So physical factors associated with SIDS include brain defects. Some infants are born with problems that make it more likely for them to die of SIDS. In many of these babies, the portion of the brain that controls breathing or arousal from sleep hasn't matured enough to work properly. Uh, low birth weight, premature Birth or being part of multiple birth increases the likelihood that the baby's brain hasn't matured completely. So she or he or she has less control over such autonomic processes such as breathing and heart rate. So although the heart does, um, the heart is the one that regulates its own rate and rhythm. It can't, they, you know, with premature or, you know, you know very young babies, low birth weight babies, they may not, the heart may not be fully developed to the point that it's giving a good constant sinus rhythm. And then respiratory infections. Many infants who die of SIDS had recently had a cold, which uh, might contribute to breathing problems. So sleep environmental factors. Uh, the item in the baby's crib and his or her sleeping position can combine with the baby's physical problems to increase the likelihood of SIDS. Example of these would be sleeping on the stomach or the side. Babies placed in these positions to sleep might have difficulty breathing than those, more difficulty breathing than those placed on their backs. Uh, sleeping on a soft surface, lying face down on a fully on a fluffy comforter or soft mattress or waterbed, can block an infant's airways. Uh, sharing a bed, while the risk of SIDS is lowered if an infant sleeps in the same room as his or her parents, the risk of increase the risk increases if the baby sleeps in the same bed with the parents, siblings, or pets. And that being is that if anything happens, you know, they're not able to alert you for whatever reason. And then overheating, being too warm while sleeping can, risk, can increase the risk of baby's uh, chance of uh, dying from SIDS. So again, make sure the room is appropriate temperature, but don't necessarily have to bundle your child up or make it, your child up or make it screamingly hot in the room. So let's see, risk factors. Although sudden infant death syndrome can strike any infant, researchers have identified several factors that might increase a baby's risk. This includes sex. Uh, boys are slightly more likely to die of SIDS. Now, we talked about this earlier that with uh, Alti, they were finding that more female babies were at risk of Alti than male babies. Then you have age. Infants were more vulnerable between the second and fourth months of life. For reasons that aren't understood, non-white babies are more likely to develop SIDS. And there's no good definable reason why. Uh, family history, babies who have siblings and or cousins that die of SIDS are at higher risk of SIDS. Again, secondhand smoke, you know, just quit smoking. Just it, it, 
It's tough. It's hard. I get it. Your cigarette's your best friend. It's always there when you need it. When you're pissed off, go outside and have a cigarette. I get it. But you got to stop. I mean, it just comes down to that. It's bad for you. Vaping is bad for you. Smoking is bad for you. Tobacco use of any form is bad for you. You like it. It's addictive. <laughs> it's an enjoyable thing, but it's just bad for you. And then if the baby's born premature, both being born early, having low birth weight, you know, these are all things that increase your chance, uh, baby's chances of developing SIDS. So uh, there's some maternal factors too. During pregnancy, the mother also affects her baby's risk of SIDS. If she's under the age of 20, it can increase the risk. Again, smoking cigarettes. So the use of uh, drugs or alcohol during pregnancy can also be uh, an increased increase factor. And then also having inadequate prenatal care. So you need to go see your doctor, your OB-GYN. You need to make sure everything's going on properly during the uh, pregnancy. You need to be taking your prenatal vitamins. So prevention. Uh, there's no guaranteed way to prevent SIDS. But you can help your baby sleep more safely by following these. Again, back to sleep, not getting them back to sleep because that's a challenge for everybody sometimes, but putting them on their back to sleep. Uh, place your baby uh, on the back to sleep uh, rather than on the stomach or the side. Every time you or, put you or anyone else put the baby to sleep for the first year of life, uh, this isn't necessary when your baby's awake and able to roll over both ways without your help. Don't assume that others will place your baby to sleep in a correct position, insist on it. And advise sitters and child care providers not to use stomach position or uh, to calm the baby and to combinate the baby. Keep the bit crib as bare as possible. Use a firm mattress and avoid placing your baby on the, on the thick, fluffy padding, such as lambskin or thick quilt. Don't leave pillows, fluffy toys, stuffed animals in the crib. These can interfere with breathing in your baby's face if it's pressed up against them. Uh, don't overheat your baby. To keep your baby warm, try a sleep sack or other sleep clothing that doesn't require additional covers, but don't cover your baby's head. Have the baby sleep in your room. Ideally, the baby should sleep in your room with you, but not in your bed. They should be alone in a crib, a bassinet, or other structure designed for infants for at least the first six months, and if possible, up to a year. Adult beds aren't safe, for instance. They're obviously, they're obviously bigger. You're in there. They're covered by blankets. They're usually softer. And a baby can become trapped and suffocate between the headboard slats, the space between the mattress and the bed frame, the space between the mattress and the wall. <laughs> baby can, it's just, it's just bad juju, you know. There are just so many pitfalls to it. So breastfeed your baby if possible. Breastfeeding for at least six months lowers the risk of SIDS. Now, we're not advocating breastfeeding over bottle feeding for other reasons, but apparently there's a connection here. Don't use baby monitors and other commercial devices that claim to reduce the risk of SIDS. The American Academy of Pediatrics discourages the use of monitors and other devices because of the ineffectiveness and baby safety issues. That's interesting. Uh, offer a pacifier. Sucking on a pacifier without a strap or string at nap time or bedtime might reduce the risk of SIDS. One caveat, if you're breastfeeding, wait to offer the pacifier until your baby is three to four weeks old. And you've settled into a nursing routine. If your baby's not interested in the pacifier, don't force it. Try again another day. If the pacifier falls out of your baby's mouth while he or she is sleeping, don't pop it back in. 
then immunize your baby. There is no evidence that routine immunizations increased SIGs risks. This is one of the things that anti-vaxxers will tell you, and it's just not borne out in the literature or in the studies. So, and there's even some evidence that indicates that immunizations can help prevent SIDS. So, yeah, there we go. So, <clears throat> Alti, Brewy, and SIDS. All in one 45-minute or so podcast. So, one of the toughest parts about doing this podcast is we get a lot of really great ideas from listeners. We also research a lot of really great ideas. And the problem is, is that trying to walk that fine line between getting way clinical on stuff where you're using the medical terminology and everything. It can be a challenge, I got to tell you, trying to keep it not that clinically based. Well, I mean, it's all clinically based, but not that clinically inform informative so that we're not just putting everybody to sleep. I mean, some people are driving while they're listening to this. We do not want to put you to sleep. But speaking of a uh, listener idea, this actually, this episode was uh, was yelled at me across an ambulance bay, I believe at St. Vincent's, by one of my coworkers, uh, Alan. So thank you for the idea. Uh, once I started looking into Brewy, I found that although it's a very interesting subject, there's not near as much information on it as I thought, it, thought there would be. So we did have to expand it a little bit. Yeah, um, Alan was walking across the bay and he uh, yelled at me, hey, have you ever thought of doing a thing on, and he said a word and I'm like, a bruja, which would be a witch or a wizard. That didn't seem right. He said it again. I said a bruhaha, which is usually a social agitation over a situation like an election. That didn't seem right. And then he said something else. I said, a brewski? You want a beer at work? That doesn't seem right. <laughs> he said, no, you big dumb jerk. A brewie, which made a lot more sense once he said it. Now, I do have to say 90% of that story is probably false. So <laughs> But, uh, yeah, basically it was, hey, have you thought about doing a show on Brewy? And I thought, oh, that's a pretty good idea. And then I had to go figure out who he was because I didn't really take a good look at him. And I wanted to make sure that I, I'm 90% sure I got the name right. I believe it was Alan. So, Alan, thank you very much for the idea uh, for the show. We do appreciate it. We always appreciate uh, Subject Matter Shows. If you sent one in and we haven't done a show on it yet... That doesn't mean it's not going to be done. It just means that we're uh, trying to get the right amount of information done in the right way. Sometimes it may be part of a bigger episode where we're talking about multiple different things. Because, again, it can be very difficult uh, finding enough information to fill up an hour without going extremely clinical on it. You know, it seems to be two different types of websites that we find when we're doing this information. It's either the, this is a very dry, very in-depth uh, dissertation on a study or it's yeah it's bad don't do it sort of stuff <laughs> so uh, we are trying to find a happy medium between those two uh, we get we're getting re uh, getting reached out from a lot of people we love it very much we try and answer everything as fast as can as we can and we will uh, endeavor to answer every single message and every single email if we haven't gotten to yours I will get to it, I promise. Chris and I will get to it. So we both check it. Uh, that's about all I've got for you on pediatric events. If you would like to get a hold of us, it's uh, you can email us at medesideestuff at yahoo.com. You can get a hold of us on Twitter at medsidestuff, M-E-D-S-I-D-E-S-T-U-F-F. We're on Instagram at meds medical stuff number 52. Actually, it says medical stuff 52. There's no anything in between them. And then we're on Facebook at Medical Stuff. So 
We would love to hear from you. Comments, critiques, uh, criticisms, adulation. Yeah, we, we accept it all. Ideas, that would be awesome. We're always up for some good ideas. So, yeah, if you want to get a hold of us, please drop us a message, and we will get back to you. I hope you're having a good week. We will talk to you next week. Alan, thank you again. We do appreciate it. And have a good evening. Solo Toast. <laughs>